0: The, uh, tonight we're talking about, as I said before, Poland and Central Europe blood libel in early modern times, and last time I was speaking about Germany uh, in some detail, because all these terrible incidents happened at 12 and 1,300 in, in, in Germany. There was one left over, but I didn't want to overstay the time, and I'm going to begin with that uh, in 1475, in words, what we call the... End of the Middle Ages, because usually you think of 1492, Columbus, as when things start to change. But until then, and in some places even after that, as we'll see, the medieval spirit continues, unfortunately, particularly with regard to the Jews. And uh, one of the most famous notorious cases it takes place in Trent, the Simon the Trent case, uh, which is uh, Trento, which is um, today in Italy, but historically always part of Austria. If you know the map I don't have in front of me, Austria and Italy kind of join each other. And there's a little V of German people that stick into Austria. Bolzano and those places, which today has been conquered by Italy, but it's it's Germans. But it's German and Italian. And in the 1400s, that was not a good combination for Jews, because both of them were in a particularly vicious anti-Semitic mode. Italian Jewry is what we're looking at, therefore, and uh, it's a unique kind of Jewish community. Uh, those of you were with me in Italy will remember we talked about it at great length. They're, you know what I mean? There's Ashkenazic Jews, there's Sephardic Jews, there's Russian Jews, and so on and so forth. And there's something called Italian Jews, have their own Parsha. And the Jews in the middle of the Middle Ages were kicked out of almost all of Italy. And then they're allowed back little by little in towns of northern Italy here, and there, and then another place, and other places, strictly on the basis of being money lenders and pawnbrokers to provide credit to the poor, always according to a municipal con, uh, contract called condotta. So basically, you talk about the age of the Medici and people like that. The rich people invest their money in, in big money projects. Why not? And yet, at the same time, life cannot go on without credit for the poor. Would you agree with that statement? Nobody can, farmers, the small merchants, you know, shop owners, craftsmen, people like that, uh, you can't make it from payday to payday very often, especially in the 15th century, but even today. And there's all kinds of situations in which somebody has to borrow money. And if it doesn't happen, you'll have a revolution of some kind or another. Right? There's a lot more poor people out there than the rich. And so the danger is always there that the pressure cooker will blow up. And yet you won't find wealthy Italians who want to get involved in penny any loans and things of that nature. So what do you do? The answer is the Jews. You bring in a few Jews, two, three, four. They set up under a highly regulated system, a small bank as you call it, I don't know what you might do it, or a, a loan society, uh, very highly regulated as I say before. There's a whole machlokus in the Catholic Church, whether Catholics are allowed to charge interest or not. And then there's another machlokus where the Jews are allowed to uh, charge Catholic interest. But interestingly, from the purely Catholic religious legal point of view, they end up with the consensus that Jews are allowed to charge Christians' interest. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, they'll, tell, they'll invite a couple of Jews, not too many, God forbid, a couple of Jews into the town. And what they'll say is like this you can't go into the uh, real estate business. You can't go into the fur trade, but you can be, as I just said before, in the small loan business, okay? And uh, it's not expected to make a lot of money on that, but a Jew is always desperate to make a living under any circumstances, and the result is that you have here and there and there and there uh, Jews forming small communities all throughout central and northern Italy. Uh, I doubt if anybody here is from Italian Jewish ancestry, but if you are, then, then that's where you come from. Now... It's an essential role in the economy, and the establishment is fine with it. The rich people want it, and the bishops and the uh, big machers of the Catholic Church want it, because the archbishop and the high machermuchs, they're wealthy, and they do big loans and business investments like millionaires would do anyway. So they're glad that the Jews are handling the, the dirty stuff. But the friars are not happy with that. The the local monks, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, people like this, who, generally speaking, um, the best of them spend their lives among the poor. That's bad from our point of view, because if they're spending lives among the poor, it really bothers them that the people in their flock live less well off than the local Jews. Because I told you, the key theory of the Catholic Church ever since St. Augustine is that Jews can survive but not thrive. And so, if there are Jews living in a Catholic community, you don't kill them. However, I repeat, you don't kill them or, or physically harm them. But they should be poorer than others, and they should be living in less good conditions than others. And why is this guy who is very thrifty and has you know really counted his uh, ducats like uh, Shylock? Okay, remember Shakespeare called Shylock from this group. He says, you know, why should he assemble the money to one day can buy a big house and, and, and employ Christian servants? It really bothers them very much. And, uh, you know, he always quote, that you're not supposed to have the younger, the inferior child, uh, you know, versus the superior child, that the inferior child, which is Ju- Judaism, uh, synagogue should come before Ecclesia, before the church. So, as a result, you have a very toxic situation, and especially in the 1400s, out of the ranks of these friars came a whole bunch of anti-Semitic Billy Grahams. They were fantastic orators of the time. Uh, they were motivated by concern for the poor and by resentment of the Jews. They were, unfortunately, brilliant speakers, and there was a routine. Uh, They'd come to a town, uh, big or small, could be Florence, could be big small. They'd uh, get a big following, and he started giving a bunch of, uh, uh what should I say, Musa schmoozers. And the rich would be there. And they say, You are violating the laws of Jesus. And you're allowing the Jews to control the town and own everything and whatever. And, uh, the rich would be scared. And they say, Yes. And tell us what to do to repent. And they say, Get rid of the Jews. Um, don't kill them. I didn't say that, but throw them out of town. Uh, make them, uh, call in all their loans and, you know, liquidate it and replace it with a Christian system of uh, what they call monte de pieta, a Karen Kayama, so to speak, uh, of chesed, which means that let it be a Christian small loan um, system in which it's non-profit, you understand? And the idea is you supply the poor with the credit that they need and that the interest that they pay will be used only to maintain the system and so on and so forth and get rid of the Jews. Now, they tried this many times. 90 out of 100 times or more it failed because you didn't have the profit motive and they didn't run it right. And the question is, which, which of the balabatim of the middle class are going to run it and uh, who's in charge of uh, watching the cookie jar and all that. So the result is that there was this constant tension in Italy throughout all the time between those who were setting up these monte di pietas as they call them and the uh, friars would come in there. And as I say, there were brilliant speakers. When these guys show up, it is toxic for the local Jews. I mean, that's the the, the 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 angel of death, and that's what it was. And there's a whole bunch of them, right? Uh, that are famous, uh, uh, John de Capistrano. There's a, there's a whole whole group of these guys that walked up and down through Italy. Sometimes they went as far as Poland, even. And they were brilliant orators, and the public adored them. And from a purely Catholic view, you can understand why they would. They were tribunes of the poor. At least that's how they portrayed themselves. And the bottom line is, get rid of the Jews. And in the best case situation, in the best case situation everything will be liquidated, um, what shall I say, in an orderly fashion. The Jews will pull their money back, they'll give back all the pledges, they'll leave town, and so on and so forth. In worst case situation, they killed the Jews right there. Yeah. And so, like I say, it was a toxic situation. And that's exactly what happened in Trent. In, uh, one, of, one of the most famous of these uh, orators of the friars was, uh, <laughs> you know, Chicago, San Bernardino, Saint Bernardino, okay? Don't ever go to San Bernardino. <laughs> uh, Bernardino Feltre, uh, very famous, uh, is a saint in the Catholic Church over here. And he um, was a ter- fiery orator. And in 1575, I'll read you an official uh, account. Um, and that is that in his ser- Lenten sermons of 1475, Lenten is before Pisa, before Easter. And so imagine in March or whatever, this guy comes in and starts giving a whole bunch of drushes. He endeavored to incite the people against the Jews, but instead provoked displeasure among the part of the Christians. Meaning, the well-to-do people said, you're just causing trouble, get out of here. A-S-A-P. He predicted, you'll see, the next Jewish Passover, a ritual murder will occur. Okay, Well, that's all you need. That's like, that's like giving an invitation, isn't it? Okay? Uh, that's like the South saying, I can predict for sure that in two months will be a lynching. That itself causes a lynching. You see, and so the result is, in accordance with this prediction, a child named Simon was 28 months old. Okay, just so an innocent, disappeared on March 23, 1475, which is a few days before Pesach. Uh, Bernardino of uh, uh, Feltre and Johannes Schweitzer, and lastly uh, and other people, the excited people themselves declared that the child would be found among the Jews. Meaning, when San Bernardino hears that indeed a kid disappeared. He said, oh, I predicted, I I told you. Search the Jewish houses and you'll find him there. After a careful search through the Jewish quarter ordered by the bishop and executed by the Podesta, the governor of Trent, because they used to have a civil governor under the emperor, uh, it proved fruitless. They didn't find any body. On the eve of Easter Monday, March 26th, oh, it doesn't get better than that. Easter is when they crucify, right? So you see, Easter uh, is, is, is a terribly dangerous time Historically Jews living in Catholic areas. And some Jews noticed the body of a kid, a child in the river, near the house of one of their number named Samuel. So uh oh. Now what really happened, you know I was though somebody put it there. But that's what I say. Without a moment's delay, three of them, Tobias, a physician, Samuel, and Angelo Angelo, hastened to notify the bishop. Meaning they did what a law abiding citizen is supposed to do. You see the body immediately before the police. Or the governor, or the bishop, but they were not admitted into his presence. So you already start to see the conspiracy forming among the authority figures. The podestà, the civil governor, visited the house of Samuel, took possession of the body, and ordered the arrest of all those present Samuel, Angel, Tobias, Isab, Bonatura, and another uh, a Jewish cook. After a medical examination of the body, it was stated that death was the result of violence not of accidental drowning. A baptized Jew. So it always ends up with these situations. Johanna Feltre, who had been a prisoner for several years for theft, meaning he's not somebody who had a reputation for extreme honesty, seized the apparent opportunity to shorten the term of his imprisonment by declaring that the Jews used the blood of Christians for ritual purposes at the Passover. Yeah. So the nature of this from a lawyer's point of view, and we have attorneys here tonight, uh, stinks to high heaven. On the strength of this allegation, all the members of the Jewish community, women and children included, were arrested. The proceedings began them, began against them two days later, March 28th. The accused pleaded not guilty and denounced two men, Johannes Schweitzer, who had uh, access to the flowing river by Samuel's house and for a long time had been an enemy of the Jews. And so he said this, anti-Semite did it, and the German tailor named Enselon. Johannes Schweitzer and his wife were arrested, but they proved an alibi as regards 23 March, but only an alibi for the daytime. They were finally liberated from prison in a miraculous manner, meaning the guards let him go. Then began days and nights of torture for the Jews. Now recall, torture was part of the legal system. The whole trick is not to get indicted by the legal system. Once you get indicted by the legal system, you you will confess. In which numerous methods of compelling confession were tried. For a long time, the sufferers remained steadfast and faithful, but after weeks of torture, now think about that, weeks of torture had weakened their will, they confessed in the exact words dictated by their clerical tormentors and assassins. So if you read what they confessed to, it'll blow your mind. But if you know how they got the confession, it won't. These abominable practices caused the Duke and others to intercede and stop the proceedings. Meaning, if you're using hot pincers on people, if you're boiling them in oil, this is carrying matters too far. But the persecutions were resumed on the 5th of June and were maintained until one Jew, Moses, 80 years old, after terrible tortures and persistent denials, likewise confessed. By the end of June, eight of the wealthiest Jews, after receiving baptism were put to death after receiving baptism. Some burned and the rest beheaded. Now you understand, burning is if you don't convert, and beheading, that's the quick way, is if you do convert. So it's, a, it's, it's terrible. Um, but the cruelty of the proceedings had aroused general indignation, meaning the word had gotten out of how this trial is proceeding. The Pope, Sixtus VI, 6th, alarmed for the reputation of the church, commanded the bishop, Hilderbach, to suspend proceedings on August the 3rd. So what I'm trying to show you over here is you really have a movie. It's not a fun movie, but it's, 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 it's a story. And the question is, what will prevail? system of basic justice or the desire to just get rid of the Jews and move on until the arrival of a papal commissary Bishop Giambattista of Fertimalia, meaning the Pope, sent a special envoy from Rome who jointly with the Bishop of Trent would conduct the investigation. So like today you say like this, bring in the feds. <laughs> you, know? you don't like the local judge? Bring in the feds. The papal agent had been fully instructed beforehand. After making an investigation, he denied. He denied the martyrdom of the child Simon and disputed the occurrence of a miracle at the grave. See, but the problem is, the court had already executed verdict. They already tortured everybody, and they executed a bunch of them. There were some Jews left, but they already killed a bunch. So if really, it turns out, there was a miscarriage of justice, uh, you're going to want to punish the local officials. Do you want to punish the local officials in 1470? Then you're treading on dangerous ground. The Pope had already anticipated this denial, in an encyclical, meaning a papal bull, which he issued on October of 1475. The commissioner uncovered what he called tissue of lies. Do you understand? It's not the 20th century, but... And it was a Catholic, and by the way, he did not like the Jews, but that's not the question over here. The question is whether they did it. At least that's what you're supposed to look at from the point of view of justice. Not question whether you like them or not. Did they do it? And he says the tissue of lies, but when he demanded the immediate release of the Jews... He was denounced by the bishop and assailed by the mob, being compelled to withdraw to Roveredo. So you understand what's going on over here? They, they, they're going to rush the, the papal um, legate. It's, it's kind of a unique case where the Catholics want to do him because why did you bring in a federal guy to check the lynching out? What would you do that for? You see? Fortified by his instructions, he summoned the bishop and the potestat to answer for their conduct, meaning he called local officials in. Instead of appearing the bishop answered by a circular directed to all the churchmen in which he described the martyrdom of Simon, justifying his own share in the proceedings and denouncing the work of the papal legate as corruptum tenem, a corruption of the Inquisition. You're not doing what the Inquisition is supposed to do, but actually he was. So isn't this interesting? You use the word inquisition, and you think of the Spanish Inquisition, which burned everybody, of course, which is true. But the Inquisition is a basic... Um, institution of the Catholic Church, which is something along the lines of an FBI, meaning they actually carried out investigations. Uh, when we were in Rome, there's a headquarters even today of the, the sacred office, they call it, of the Inquisition, and people say, oh my, you know, what it is? The Inquisition does a lot of jobs. Uh, in Spain, they did what they did. In Portugal, that's true. But in Rome and in Italy, they had other, one of the things they do is look for corrupt officials, um, mistrials, and things like that. The papal commissary was emissary. I'm sorry. Was uh, taking Anselin, the actual murderer, prisoner to Rome for trial, and the bishop of uh, Trent and the governor continued their proceedings against the Jews. Some of whom they executed in December of of the year, December, January, of the following year. So you see that they're trying to get rid of the evidence, so to speak. If you kill them all, dead men tell no tales. Uh, the bishop reported to Rome that as a result of careful investigations. He found the Jews innocent, that Simon had been killed by Christians with the intention of ruining the Jews. I repeat, this is a Catholic priest, you know, almost a a bishop. And that the bishop, Hinderbach, the the, the local bishop in Trent, had planned to enrich himself by confiscating the estates of those executed. I repeat, this is not something that's from a Jewish author. The Catholic Church in their investigation said this. The Pope, Sixtus, then appointed a commission of six cardinals to investigate the two proceedings, the head of the commission being an intimate friend of Bernardino Feltre. The result was a foregone conclusion, especially since the whole Catholic Church would have been involved in the condemnation of the Bishop of Trent, meaning the Pope, after it's all over, and the dead are dead, and the money is gone, let it go. Okay? And to be perfectly honest, what did they do in this country and held the lynchings all the time in, the, in this house? Uh, did anybody really go to jail for this? You know, the idea was, it was wrong, it, was, it didn't happen, move on. Okay. Now, um, in the decree of June 20th, 1478, the Pope declared that the proceedings against the Jews were a redirected factum, meaning notice they, they just dealt with existing facts, and we're not going to discuss it anymore. So this clearly was a case, obviously a miscarriage of justice. You don't need me to tell you, I don't have to tell you, that Jews didn't actually go and torture a little kid to get the blood, but I'm trying to show you that even by the standards of the investigatory procedure of the Roman Catholic Church, when they actually went went after it, they saw it's a lie, but what do the locals do? They do what we're going to see over and over again in the history of the blood libels, and that is they're going to try to uh, rewrite history, okay? And how do you do rewrite history? Oh, you. Uh, let's go to the next picture over here. Now let's. Uh, no, let's do we? Uh, I want about the crucifixion. Yeah, they set up a whole artwork in the cathedral in Trent, and so when visitors come there, until today, you can see how the Jews tortured the little child, and then he becomes a symbol of innocence uh, destroyed by malevolence. And this is really Italian art, Catholic art. The facts don't matter so much. It's the artistic... No, you get it. If you go to Italy, first of all, you don't even have to go to a church. It's all over the streets. But if you go to a church, is this really what Jesus looks like? Is this talking what St. Peter did when I read it in the Old Testament? It, was like, it doesn't matter. This is how Michelangelo portrayed it. You know, this is a Leonardo da Vinci, but it's the artistic side of it that's supposed to catch you. And you're supposed to do what Coleridge called a willing suspension of a certain amount of disbelief in order to get into the artistic idea. See here, also, you know, so it wasn't exactly. Eh, it's there till today. Okay, it's there till today. And the truth of the matter is that uh, uh, I repeat, the, the the people who were executed were were tortured with hot pincers and things. like tore their fingers off. Or whatever. I don't want to get you too 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 sick. Um, we see the re- recurrence of a pattern we've seen before, which was good and bid. And that is, that the Pope gets involved, and the Pope knows that the blood libel is not true. Now, why do I say it's good? Um, if the Pope would have signed off that the Jews do it, they'd kill the Jews everywhere. So he had to have, at least at the top, that this is not true. But it, as you see, none of the Popes were willing to invest their personal, what should I say, credit, in fighting a local miscarriage of justice, if it'll cause more trouble for the church than it's worth. Because right? at the end of the day, they shouldn't do it to a bunch of Jews. No big deal. After all, the Jews were going to go to hell anyway. No, true or not? I'm serious. They were damned anyway. You know. So, this is the sad fact. I always like to point out that the Pope over here, um, the way it works in, in Jewish history, including with this, is the more corrupt the Pope, the better he was for the Jews. Words, the less for him, shall we say, the, uh, the better one for the Jews, because then he wasn't so um, fanatical and so passionate. Sixtus IV the, the uh, is one of the first of the Renaissance popes. You think of the Borgias and uh, Pope Julius and others, and he started the ball rolling. And, uh, oh, he was a big playboy, and uh, look at the next uh, thing. This is a picture of him giving high positions to his nephews. Uh, in Italy, a nephew is a nepo. So this is the founding of what's called nepotism, right? This is where you, this, this is where you get the uh, expression from Sixtus to Fourth. And uh, one of those two, the handsome one, will later on become Pope Julius II. Um, the, this, Pope Sixtus was a big playboy. He had uh, two sets of mistresses, female and male, okay? It's Italy, you know. And um, therefore, he's no paragon of virtue, However, it's funny how uh, how you define that. If you're talking about sexually and otherwise, that's one thing. But he takes his responsibilities towards the Jews seriously. Isn't that interesting? In other words, as the Pope, he said like this, what I do in my private life is one thing, but as a governor, as a person responsible for the execution of law and order, that there should be due process and the elders, that I, that I take seriously. And though he does allow the Spanish Inquisition, because he was the Pope, at the time that Ferdinand Isabella set up the Inquisition in Spain, uh, within a few years, he denounced them in a famous papal bull for, for, for its barbarism. You hear what I'm saying? The Spanish Inquisition was condemned by the Pope for being too cruel to the Jews, to the Moranos, to be more exact. Okay, So it's a funny world, but he didn't really have the power to do anything about it in Spain. In Spain, they said, like seeing people go to the rabbi, we have a hatter to the Inquisition, blah, blah, blah. But do we have a hatter? That's all I want to hear. Goodbye. And that's how it was. Now, I, I make a big deal out of this pope simply because um, his uh, nephew, uh, a few years later, becomes the famous Pope Julius. They have a whole movie about him over here. Uh, Julius II. Yeah, there you go. Who was uh, the pope. Doesn't work? Okay. Warrior. A warrior pope. He was the one who fought in the... You understand the pope was leading his armies in battle. He was pretty good at it, too. Uh, Julie de Rovere. And, of uh, course, Pope Sixtus was... Uh, Sixtus de Rovere. And he is the one, after winning a couple of battles, he says, I want to be Mechabed, my uncle, who put me here in the first place, um, what shall I say, uh, by, by dedicating the chapel of Sixtus IV, or as you call it, the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> okay. So the Sistine Chapel is named after this pope who was a who was a playboy, <laughs> by, by another pope who was a playboy, and that is the way things happen sometimes. But you should know something: a Jew looks at the Sistine Chapel with mixed emotions. They so say, I "Guess he may have been a playboy, but at least at least he tried to do the right thing by the Jews, which is more than you can say a lot of the other popes." So it's, it's funny if you're Jewish, you have a, 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 a your own take, so to speak, on what happens over there. And he smelled the rat. And that's why he, uh, you know, he went after it, okay? Now, um, he denounced the whole story as a lie, but a century later, Pope Six is the fifth, it was a very different type of guy, he canonized Simon of, of, of Trent as a martyr, okay? As a, as a saint of the Catholic Church, and also Bernardino of Feltre. So these are two big saints. As time goes on, especially when we get to the 20th century, the Catholic Church... Does care, because they have to, about the historical accuracy of their saints. Because after all, if this exposes a bunch of lies, then everybody's going to treat it as something contemptible, and uh, the, maybe the faithful themselves will start to mock it. And they, so every once in a while they have to review if there's any um, uh, evidence to unsaint somebody or decanonize them, as the expression goes. And in the 1960s, Pope Paul VI uncanonized Simon of Trent. Because by the 1960s, Catholic Church decided to go a little more liberal, a little more tolerant, after Pope John 23rd, Anyway, Hitler made anti-Semitism a little bit unpopular. Unfortunately, that turns out to be an episode. Now, as you know, anti-Semitism is rolling back big time in Europe. But in 1960, so they put up a, a plaque, okay? And uh, a sort of apology, you might say, at the doors. So if you go to the church there today, you still see... The the statues I showed you before of the little boy being tortured and all the rest of it. And you get to admire the wonderful artwork, but there's a little sign that's like this. This wasn't exactly true. <laughs> you right? And 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 unfortunately some people of the Jewish faith were hurt by this. Uh, but enjoy your tour. <laughs> so this is. And it was too late, of course, for the victims of the hot pincers. Now, the weird follow-up of all this is that Recently, one of the descendants of the Jews who were burned at the stake there it was the, the chief rabbi of Rome, uh, Toa, uh, um, uh, the father of the, Rabbi To'af. His son uh, was a profe- is, a is a professor at bar Ilan University in Israel um, of Jewish history, Italian Jewish history. And he's born in Rome. He, he's, he's educated in Italy. He knows Italian. But he's a Zionist. He moved to Ertz. He made Aliyah. He lives in Israel. And he read through, as one can, the uh, court documents of uh, the interrogation of the prisoners. And it's so vivid. He said, yeah, we took the kid, we squeezed his blood, we tore him to bits, we screamed, we did that. And he said, well, this sounds to be true. And very vivid. And then it bothered him as a Jew. How could you do this? And he published a book a number of years ago called Pasca de Sangre, the Passover blood, in which he said, well, maybe some Jews do kill the kids for for, for matzah. I promise you. Uh, but of course, it's not the Italian Jews. It was the Ashkenazi Jews, who are ruffians, who moved into northern Italy in order to set up these loan banks, and they're the ones that did it. Well, um, I'm surprised everybody All all broke loose as it deserves to be. Everybody's said, like, what are you talking about? You know, Are you nuts? And... Um, uh, there was a whole brouhaha. I'm not sure exactly why, but Bari lan University chooses to say like this. You have layer Fried, you know, academic freedom, and he did not get fired, and he published a little bit of a retraction, like, you know, I was, you know, the old line. I was quoted out of context and so forth, um, but this is outrageous, and that's why many of my colleagues, if you ever say toe-off, they say, well, we don't quote him or use his uh, reason, because he's obviously nuts and tainted by um, execrable knavery, as as they used to call it over there, because how can somebody do a thing? And yet, he's a guy with a yarmulke. I, I promise you, that's him. He, I don't have my, my uh, pointer today. That's him at the bottom. Now, this is going to be funny what I'm about to tell you. A very eminent American academic who's Chinese, Ronnie Posha, uh, originally born in Hong Kong, but he's an American educator, and he, he's had top academic positions around the world in Europe, and in China and the United States, and I believe now he's in uh, uh, maybe Colombia or one of those places. Uh, now, very eminent uh, person. So uh, obviously, he's not Jewish, and but he's a history major. And one of the things that interested him in history major was anti-Semitism. Now he's Chinese. Uh, it's just because you know when we're Jewish, obviously we're totally preoccupied with this. But if you're not Jewish, and if you're very objective, you can talk and wonder why they're always going after the Jews. You understand? I th- I think a person from the Orient has a, even a different perspective already. It's like, what's with the Christian? What's with the Jews going on over You know, like like what is that? And um, and I say, you know, he went to Yale. He got a uh, doctorate there. So he did his dissertation on the Trent case that I just described to you. And if you're interested, you can go uh, get the book from the library. Uh, I forgot the exact a, a, a case in Trent or something like that. But there aren't too many professors with his name. And he became the world expert on the subject, meaning he read up all the material, he traveled there, he did all the work, and I'll, I'll say it again, he's, he's won major prizes and all the rest of it. And so we see something very ironic. When this Ariel Toaf, who's a Orthodox Jew, published a book in which he said that some Jews did it, just wasn't my family, you know, that's literally what he said. Here's Haaretz. And here's a Chinese guy, Irani Poshah, writing a, an article in Haaretz, Haaretz, I remind you, critiquing and criticizing the book and saying, like, What are you, nuts? How can a historian accept confessions that were elicited with hot pincers and torture? Like, what kind of historical method is that? You know, Like, where are you coming from? And from a strictly objective academic point of view, what evidence are, uh, are you associating with? I mean, according to this, Stalin was really God. I can show a thousand guys that, that confessed to this. You know? Uh, I can guarantee you right now in Gaza, somebody's being tortured, somebody'll say whatever you want them to say. You see? And so, what is wrong it? It goes to show you how these kind of events, especially if you have some kind of family connection, can produce the weirdest results. But more than that, I can't say. All I know is it's disgusting what the guy did. And, uh, and in this day and age, besides being a lie and disgusting, you know, he's he's giving ammunition, that's all they need, right? See, even a Jew did it, a Jew with a yarmulke, and he's the one who said that that at least some Jews do it, you see? Now, um, what is the net effect, therefore, of the blood libels and the host desecration? In uh, in this period, Uh, the Jews are kicked out of Europe. That's not the only reason, but I told you 1475, by that time and within a few years, you see a pattern in which the Jews are expelled from almost every country in Europe. From Spain, from Portugal, from most of Italy, from 95-96% of Germany, and the whole Roman empire, from the Netherlands and Belgium, from Scandinavia, from Russia, from Hungary. Uh, you got a pattern there. you got a pattern there. And what's the reason? Well, there are a number of reasons. There's economic reasons. Another. One of the reasons is a huge hatred of the Jews, because after all, you can't blame somebody. If they believe this kind of stuff. Right? The average person out there hears that the Jews tortured Simon of Trent and, 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 and did horrible things to him. They don't know the legal details. They can't read or write usually and you know a papal or you know. Come on, that's for elites. As far as the average person concerned, you know this Jewish fellow, that Jewish fellow, that's he or his cousins, this is what they do on Passover sometimes. Right? If he doesn't do it, he's a nicer one, but his brother does it. Of course you don't want him around. After all, I'm a German, I'm a Frenchman, I have children, I don't want dangerous people living in my neighborhood. It's totally understandable. And so the result is that they're chucked out of, of Europe altogether, and then there are no more blood libels because there are no more Jews. So you won't see blood libels in Italy and Spain and England and Portugal, but there are no more Jews, you see? But they'll still be in Hungary and then in Eastern Europe. I'll just point out that uh, Hungary, which in the central of Europe, was still a, a country at that time for it was conquered by the Turks, witnessed a bunch of major blood libel cases in 1494 and 1536, and one in Posing in 1529. So you see, here in the 1400s, it's in Italy, but then when the Jews are mostly out of Italy, moves it moved north into Hungary. The Posing affair was instigated by the local count, Ferenc Wolf who owed sizable sums of money to Jewish creditors. There you see the classic pattern that we saw last time. Uh, it works. Why not use it? After he proclaimed in public that the Jews had killed a Christian child in order to use the blood for ritual purposes, 30 Jews were arrested, including community leaders, or Moshe Ben Yaakov and his children, all burned at the stake. The remaining Jews expelled from the city. Right? And justice is done. Only one problem. The boy of whose murder the Jews were accused of, was later found alive. It's a little bit of a legal problem. <laughs> Is it? it was this case that served as an impetus behind the first systematic refutation of the ritual murder accusation by Christian theologian, uh of Nuremberg. Meaning some humanists, and some, but only a few, Christian um, intellectuals started to say, does this thing really have legs... Uh, I mean, you can't get better than that. If the dead person shows up, obviously there wasn't a murder. You see? So, what do you do with that? But did it totally get rid of the blood? It didn't. Now, um, it sufficiently impressed the Pope, Paul III, that time, who was no friend to the Jews, but nevertheless he writes to Hungary and Bohemia, and he says, lay off. In a famous bull, he makes clear his displeasure at having learned through the complaints of the Jews of Hungary and Bohemian Poland, that their enemies, he said, this is his language, looking for a pretext to lay their hands on their property or falsely attributing terrible crimes to them, especially killing children and drinking their blood. And the Pope in Rome says that this, this is a well-known lie. Whenever you hear this, you know somebody owes money to some Jew somewhere. You see? So, I mean, what are you, pot calling the kettle black. I mean, I, I repeat over and over again, you see the Pope in Rome is, 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 is getting to this. By the time you get to the 1500s, so Europe goes through a major transformation with the Protestant Reformation, correct? You have Martin Luther, you have John Calvin, you have uh, the breakup of the monopoly of the Catholic Church on Christianity in Europe, and things are looking quite different. Whole countries break away from the Catholic Church. The Protestant religion, from then till today, has two faces when it comes to the Jews. Two faces. Um to use a contemporary example, and I'll just use one from the last couple days. Uh, I'm sure you all follow the news that the Presbyterian church recently came out in favor of, of the, um, what do you call it, the BDS, the disinvestment. Yeah, and they put up a whole anti-Israel. It's all, my mom's like, it's all, all, everything is a fault of Zionism. And yet, I have a student of mine who's in contact with a Presbyterian minister somewhere in Maryland, some right-wing Presbyterian church who wants to get my address on my shul because he wants to send him money for, the, for Oberstein, for the, for the armor, for the tzahar. Okay, So there's all types. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Can't p- paint with a broad, broad brush. And broadly speaking, <laughs> if I can do that, uh, you look at the face of Protestantism and you see on the one end, on the extreme left, Martin Luther, who's a Hitler type, who by the time he was finished wrote books in which he said the Jews should be put in concentration camps, they should be worked to death, their, their skin should be used for lamb shades, He writes this. Their dead their, uh, their bodies should be plowed for fertilizer. And so, you know, they're beyond, beyond. And yet, on the other hand, you have William the Silent, uh, who's the founder of the Dutch Republic, and Oliver Cromwell, the big Protestant in England, who, Frank, who had no trouble saying like this, I hate the Catholics a lot more than I hate the Jews. <laughs> right? Jews are not so bad. I mean, they're wrong, and they don't, believe, they don't believe in Jesus yet. But, no, 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 I'm serious. But on the other hand, they have a lot of virtues, and the William of the Silent is the ones who let him into the in Netherlands. Oliver Cromwell lets him into England. You see, believe, and the same Oliver Cromwell will go and wipe out the Catholics in Ireland. You follow? Because he's telling you the Jews are not trying to burn me, but the Pope is. So Protestantism, broadly speaking, leads where where it takes root to a lessening of the kind of blood libels, and obviously you can't have a host desecration if the people don't believe in the host. Right Rabbi? now, some some of the Protestant groups have a kind of a host, like the Episcopalians, the Church of England, and others. There are, as big, by the way, there's huge battles, theologically, among different Christian, Protestant denominations over these issues. There are, but overall, it moves towards more rationality. Overall, it moves towards more, more moderation. Overall, it moves towards an uh, idea where is, there's not one Protestant group, there's several, and, and they got to get along somehow or other. And especially when you get The more radical types, like Oliver Cromwell, they hold not only against the host, they say it's a vote of Zorro. I mean, he he says that. According to him, you can't have even uh, a cross in a church. I mean, you know, the the Puritans take it very seriously. And when you end up with this kind of environment, it's much less likely, not totally impossible, much less likely that you're going to end up with somebody accusing a Jew of of using blood for matzahs and things like that. Um, But most Jews don't end up in the Protestant countries most Jews end up in two big countries, or two big empires. Um, if you can see in the map, I don't have the, my pointer. The Ottoman Empire at the lower part, you all see that? And then Poland, and Lithuania above there? Everybody see what I'm talking about? On the right-hand side of the map? Right. So, most Jews, all the Ashkenazic Jews end up in the north in Poland, Lithuania? Almost all of them, and almost all of the Sephardic Jews end up in the Ottoman Empire. Both of which are very okay. Both—that's right. I can do that. I forgot. I'm not. I'm not tied up to anything. <laughs> Thank you, Yosef. <laughs> Free at last. Um, anyhow, um, this is significant because what happens in those two countries is obviously going to affect the Jews right? What happens in Switzerland, aren't there hardly any Jews in Switzerland. What happens in, in the Ottoman Empire, in the Turkish Empire, which is this huge territory in Poland, now the Muslims are, were not into the blood libel at that time. Sadly, they are majorly into the blood libel today, as, as you know we'll speak about it. I know you follow this if you, if you follow a little bit of the propaganda. Um, and obviously a Muslim cannot charge host desecration, uh, you know, First of all, they don't believe in Jesus. Second of all, they definitely don't believe in the way wafer becoming the body and the blood and all the rest of that's, that's, They're very anti vodozora as, as everybody knows. But there were plenty of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. Lots. And they are uh, very jealous and hateful towards the Jews. And uh, they will try to accuse the Jews repeatedly of uh, these kind of crimes. So then on a local level, they can arrest the local Jews in whatever town in the Middle East and, 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 and kill them. Um, the only thing that is, that at least in the 1500s, he had a very strong sultan system. And the most famous Turkish ruler of the 1500s, Suleiman the Magnificent, who is a, a great conqueror, uh, he took the Turks up to Vienna. So it's, it's no joke, right? Uh, you know, he, he took it as far as it's gone. He, so he, he was really an impressive guy. Uh, and yet he was a very fair kind of ruler. He, he, he tried to pr- practice justice. In in the Turks called him Solomon the lawgiver, which means that he, he you know kept to the laws. And he issued a famous decree, because <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but uh, he had a Jewish doctor, you know, so <laughs> Moshe Hamon. This is really true. So the Jewish doctor talked to him. He said, I guess, you know, they're accusing my people, of this and, that and the other, you know, it's not true, and so on and so forth. And he said, Doc, you know, you, you helped my back ache last week, so I'm going to give you, <laughs> you know, I'm going to give you a firman. I'm going to give you a decree in which he said, I don't want to hear about this stuff. It's a lie, and if anybody brings it up, they will deal with me. In the Turkish Empire, that means like this first you, first you get arrested, then you get killed, then you get a trial, and then you're found guilty. So you don't mess with that. <laughs> you understand? Um, so you, in the 1500s, 1600s, you don't have to worry about this in, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, on the other hand, the rest of the Jews end up in Poland, as we said before. Let's just go back to that map for a second, right? This area that you see over here includes many countries today. What they call Poland at that time is Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarus. That's a lot of territory. So when I talk about the kingdom of Poland, which once upon a time existed, it's equal to Eastern Europe. you get it? It's equal to Eastern Europe. And that's where the Ashkenazim were dumped into. The Poles, for a variety of reasons, mostly economic, allowed them in, even though Poland is definitely a Catholic country. We've spoken about this on other occasions. And uh, here the Jews face a very complex reality with the church against them, but the nobles favored them because of economics. Okay? The typical situation, I don't want to spend too much time on it, is that you have a nobleman in uh, that huge territory, and he owns X number of slaves, who we call serfs, and he had so much karka, so much uh, territory, and being an intelligent steward of his own economic interests or hers, many of them were duchesses and princesses. So they want to know how to turn what they have into money, naturally. And the Poles themselves never developed a a commercial class, shall we say, not not a significant one. They had one in cities, but not in the in the big territories. And what the uh, Polish rulers of Poland did was invite outside ethnic groups who have business skills to come in and settle and develop their country in a manner that would redound to the economic utility of the magnates. Basically, in plain English, it means like this. I will bring in a bunch of Germans, Scottish, French, Italians, Greeks, Armenians, those kind of ethnic groups that are handlers and businessmen and Jews. Okay? Um, you know, you look around the world today, there's not that big of a Peruvian colony everywhere doing business, but there's a Chinese colony everywhere doing business, isn't that true? Indians, Pakistanis, you see what I'm saying? You know, there are certain groups, Arabs, Chinese, all over the world. It's interesting, right? Uh, not indonesians you know, there are certain groups by history and, and whatever that they, uh, you know, South Africa is a large Indian and other colonies that came there for, for, for trading. Jews are one of those types. They're not the only ones, but the Jews are one of those types. And so they bring all these groups in, and basically they invite them to have an economic war, one with the other, one ethnic group with the other. And, and I'm the nobleman, and let's say, for example, I'm in a huge forest, as they did. I'm in a huge forest. And what can we do to turn this forest into cash? And the French guys will say, we can come up with this and this project, and you'll make 90%, we'll make 10%, or something like that. The uh, Scottish will come and say, we can cut it, and you'll get 92% yeah, right, we'll get 8%, and maybe, you know, the Armenians will come, and come in there, and the Jews uh, And uh, it's a, this is a economic war. it's very interesting, economic war. it goes for 200 years, and the Jews kill them all, because the Jews say, I guess you get 99%, I'll take 1%. You, ha- you have no choice. You get it, in other words, in a ruthless, uh, pure, capitalistic environment of the type that I just described, you simply have to make it worth their while to take you, and uh, the Jews says like this, he says, I get in with him, maybe even 1%, maybe next time I'll get 2%, maybe I'll get 3%, once we establish a business relationship. And I can't forbear doing this since I have the opportunity. There'll be a forest all the way up here. King Henry VIII he needs a navy. The Jew will go to the Polish guy who owns all the forest, and he'll say, I have a cousin, Shmero, who has another cousin named Beryl, and we can get into the river, and get up to Humber, and I have another guy that's Connection to the shipping business, and we can get it to England, and I have a guy in London who can do this. He's a Murano, but really, he's one of ours, you know, and he, and he can get it over there, and, buy, and, and here's the numbers. And they do it, and that's how life was lived. And if, if what I just described was the case, then if the local priest or bishop is going to say, oh, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the great nominal will sell the and say, you shut up and stick to Sunday and your business, and don't mess with this because you're dealing hurt with my pocket. And since he's the absolute ruler of the estate, typically speaking, the churchmen will obey. He might not like it, but he will obey. And so this was the complex economic and therefore social reality the Jews faced in Poland. There was a big difference between the area I just described, where most of the country was owned by two or three dozen families, and the cities where nobody owned, and therefore the church was very powerful. If you're a Jew living in a city in Poland like Lublin, Lemberg, Krakow, you know, Posen, a lot of anti-Semitism is felt very directly. You have pogroms and things like this. All the um, blood libel cases that we'll see about you are always taking place in this kind of environment. If you live out in the countryside, I'll just use a cliche: Fiddler on the Roof. You know, little little town here and there. Actually, life is much better because you wouldn't be where you are if you weren't giving, make, making money for the for the noblemen, and and but in return you get protection. You see, so it was a very complex type of situation. The Jesuits and the jealous municipal authorities always looking to make pogroms, but it won't happen on the magnet estates. Therefore, most Jews in Poland live outside the big cities on these estates, on these little shtetls. As I told you before, the Jews win this uh, economic battle against the others. It takes 200 years. By the time you get to the, around 1700, the Jews control the Polish economy. Now, subject to the landlords, to the noblemen. The noblemen control, but the people that actually do the middle work the Frenchmen are kicked out. The Scots are kicked out, believe it or not. The Italians, the Greeks, the Armenians. For, for, for the great majority of Poland, they're gone. And Instead, you have a Jew here and a Jew there and a Jew in the third place and a fourth place. That's how it goes. So it's kind of a very interesting uh, sort of development. Now, resentment against too many Jews and too rich Jews who are both surviving but also thriving results in a continuous series of blood libels that goes all the way through the 1516 and especially the 1700s, in different places in Poland, with lots of tortures and killing and along the lines that we said before. And I'm going to read you a piece uh, in a minute. Interestingly, there is a king of Poland, but the king of Poland has, depending when and where, not so much power. The more power the king of Poland has, better for the Jews. Okay, uh, You have, for example, the two famous kings in the 1500s, uh, Sigismund and, and Stefan Batori. These are famous names in Polish and European history. Uh, they were powerful kings. They led the armies and all that. And they insisted on, on justice and law and order. And they passed all kind of laws which are like this. You want to bring up a blood libel charge, you have to have four Christian witnesses, three Jewish witnesses. You have to have a, you know attorney general, um, what do you call it, writ, and you have to run it by a judge, meaning they set a a high standard of of justice to discourage some local yokel from just coming up, because they know some stupid local yokel can just say something, and it will lead to devastating results. And I don't want, if I'm a nomad, I don't want any of this in my kingdom. You follow? Uh, These Jews are worth money to me, so leave my dogs and my Jews alone. But but that is how life was lived. And so, uh, but at the same time, Poland, in the time I'm talking about, in the 1500s, 1600s, was in the grip of what would they call the Counter-Reformation. I told you before that the Protestants started in 1500s, and they cracked the monopoly of the Catholic Church, which tried to kill them, but unfortunately wasn't successful from the point of view of the Vatican. And they had huge wars to try to win this out, like the Thirty Years' of War, which wiped out Germany, and uh, similar wars, and it was even Stephen, and nobody could win. So it then ended up with a kind of, uh, what should I say, 50-50, For example, the Catholics got uh, Italy and Spain and Portugal, but the Protestants got England and uh, Holland. Uh, The Catholics got Austria, um, and eventually, after a lot of fights, France was up and down, uh, but the Protestants got Scandinavia. You you see what I'm saying? It was like tossing. But the Catholics fought hard for each country, and they often won. And one of the places they won was Poland, because look what a huge territory it was. And so they play for keeps. And Poland, that we think of today as an arch-Catholic country, which it is, was once upon a time a place with a lot of Protestant nobles and others like that. And the Polish constitution, such as it was, had always said that everybody can have their own personal religious liberty in the Christian uh, framework. And the Catholic Church, therefore, had to use all kinds of tricks and shticks and the Jesuits and the others to try to undermine the position of the Protestant nobles I'm simply trying to point out to you that at the time the Jews happened to move to Poland, there was a lot of inter-Christian fighting going on over there. That's what it was. Um, this generates a lot of, um, what shall I say, religious passion and hatred, which is not going to be good for the Jews, even though in the context I'm talking about, the Jews are collateral damage. But so what? Collateral damage is also damage. And so um, this is exacerbated by the fact, as we did a couple years ago, in the middle of the 1600s, you had the Khmelnytsky uprisings, Poland is shattered by the Cossacks, the Russians, the Swedes, the Germans, the Turks, all of whom invaded Poland over the course of 25 years and uh, destroyed everything. And uh, Poland was really uh, smashed and and bashed. And then came the recovery for a little while under King John Sobieski, who was a famous Polish hero. He saved Christendom from being conquered by the the Turks who were about to take Vienna, and he stopped them. Okay, and he was a famous hero who fought the Muslims back in Polish history. And he was a real Polish patriot, and he protected the Jews. So it's very interesting. He was very good to the Jews. So during his reign, which ended in the late 1600s, is no blood libels because the king will, will stop it. But once he died, the Polish crown became a joke. Instead of giving to his kids, who should have gotten it, they literally sold to highest bidder, the nobles, and it became uh, German princes who were... Unbelievably corrupt and unbelievably dissolute, Augustus the First of Saxony became the King of Poland. Here, his claim to fame in history is he had three hundred and seventy-five illegitimate children. You understand? The uh, at least that's that by the latest count. You know who knows? The, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, that really is all, You know that is his big accomplishment. Words, he wrecked the country. He just lived for Zich. He didn't do anything for Poland. And when he died, his son got in there because of European uh, you know politics and. The uh, the oldest, what the legitimate ones, <laughs> the the legitimate one. The uh, uh, well, you want to know something? It would be funny if not for the fact that it had bad after effects on the Jews. You know, if I was even Polish history, you can laugh. If, in our context, as we've seen over and over again, we need a strong and stable, organized government. Have a law and order to prevent. Sometimes you need, and again, we have attorneys here today. You know, you need a due process system to stop the abuses that are possible. What's to stop somebody from going to space and say you did this and he did this and arrest person or that? That's why they came up with things like habeas corpus and you have to have a, you know and judges and a trial and by jury things that we sort of take for granted. You should not take it for granted, okay? And so um, after the death of John Sobieski, the Polish storm became a joke. The poles uh, were were busted. I mean they were smashed by all the invasions except the big magnates. But the Jews did well. I just told you the Jews by this time took over the Polish economy under the nobles. The church is livid. It seeks unsuccessfully to introduce the counter-reformation Gezeros, but their magnates blocked this. So what I mean is at the time I'm talking about um, the Catholic church succeeded in the countries it controlled either in expelling the Jews or, or crushing them. So I'll just give you an example. Italy or Bohemia, that's when they start ghettos. You never had ghettos before the 1500s. That's when they start all kinds of rules that a Jew can't go into this trade or that trade. They can only sell old pillows and unhealthy kinds of enterprises. And they are made to pay crazy taxes. And again, excuse me, is always raided and the Hebrew books are burned. And if anybody says something that could possibly be construed as he likes Christianity, he's forced to convert, it was a reign of terror. And that's what happened in Italy, in Prague, in Frankfurt, in areas that were under the control of the Catholic Church. The, meaning they tighten up under the challenge of the Protestant Reformation. And unfortunately, one of the ways they tighten up was on the Jews. Because the rules are they can survive, but they can't survive. They took it very seriously. And so why don't we do that in Poland? After all, it's a Catholic country, a very Catholic country, and very loyal to the Pope. And yet, the Church sees their fellow priests enforcing all this in Germany, and enforcing all this in Italy, and places like that. And in Poland, the Jews rule the roost. They run around, nobody's bothering them, more than the typical, you know, the anti-Semitism here and there. Uh, Many of them are doing well. As I said before, the the, the power brokers use them as their agents. Uh, What's going on over here? And every time they try to get a law passed in the Polish parliament, it has to be unanimous. You hear what I said? You and honestly, it's called liberum veto. One guy, if he's a veto, the, the law doesn't pass. So you're not going to get a law passed against the Jews. And so it's driving them crazy. The dissonance between the counter-reformation teaching and the prosperous situation of Jews breeds a, a fetid and, and, and putrid hatred of the Jews. Like they're looking to get them and they can't get them legally. And so as you know by now where I'm going with this. If I can't get you legally, then we'll get you through accusations of host desecration and blood libels and religious items. See? May not work all across the country, but it'll work in my community and kill them all. Or something like that. This is the sad fact. Um, And as a result, you have a nightmare of individual cases. I'm going to read you uh, two pages over here uh, from Dublin's famous description. Uh, Just give you a little bit of an idea. Of what's going on um, across Poland, it's never national, and it's you know here is a problem, next door is not a problem, but it's but it but like a, a fever, you know, it pops up here, pops up there, it break you have a breakout on your on, uh, on your uh, fore, forehead, and then a later breakout on the on the leg, and you know th- th- this is how it happened, and so he says the end of the 17th century, which is what I'm talking about. Is marked by frequency of religious trials, Jews Jews being charged with ritual murder, desecration of sacraments. These charges were the indigenous product of the superstition and ignorance of the Catholic masses, because you have to be superstition and ignorance to actually believe this stuff, but so what? They're there. But they were also used for propaganda purposes by the clerical party, the, the priests, which sometimes took a direct hand in arranging the setting of the crime by throwing dead bodies into the yards of Jews and similar contrivances. Well, what happened with Simon and Trent? Right? I mean, who put that body in the river next to the house of the Jew? The Jew didn't do it. You get it? And so, it sounds funny. I mean, I don't mean to be funny. You don't think it'd be funny either. Every day, day the Jew has to look around in his property. Nobody should throw a body there. That's what you're talking about. It's not like here. You call the cops and then, yeah. It won't turn out that way. You understand? Um, Such propaganda often resulted in the adoption of violent measures by the authorities or the mob against the alleged culprits, leading to destruction of synagogues, cemeteries, and and, and expulsion of Jews. Cases of ritual murder were tried by the Supreme Court of Poland, what they call the the Tribunal of Lublin, and owing to the zeal of the astute champions of the church, meaning a number of Catholic priests became famous for specializing in these kind of trials. It's all a lie, as we know. They frequently ended in the execution of entirely innocent persons. The most important trials of these kinds were in Sandomir and in Posen and in Sloslov in 1710 and 36 and it conducted in Inquisition fashion. The Sandomir case, and that's the one I wanted to just uh, take a, a, a few minutes to talk about. It's very famous. It's even there today. Sandomir is called, called Zuzmir. I don't know if anybody, is, uh, the Jews called it uh, It's a famous Jewish center once upon a time. It's Zuzmir. Anyway, uh, was brought about by the action of a Christian woman who threw the body of a dead child, dead body of her illegitimate child, into the yard of a kahal elder named Barak, thus giving the clergy a chance to engineer a ritual murder trial. So, again, here you have material for 10 movies, as I always say. Uh, as a local Catholic girl, she got pregnant. She's not married. Uh, I don't know, she killed the kid or the kid died. We'll never know. But she doesn't want to get in trouble. But one way of getting her off of trouble is to throw the baby in the backyard of a Jew, make it a rich Jew, and, the, and, and let events take their course. Now, by the way, she was probably dumb and stupid, a teenage girl, so the priest told her to do somebody like that. You get it? You know, she, she's not that smart to do on her own. The case passed through all the courts of law. Now, how'd that happen? <laughs> it was greatly complicated by the fanatical agitation of the priest Stefan Tuchowski, who was the Joseph Goebbels of that time. He's a very well-known figure, in Poland in that period, late 1690s, early 1700s, who brought two additional charges of ritual murder against the whole Jewish community of Sondomir and published on this occasion a book full of hideous calumnies. And this book sold like hotcakes. The case ended in the lower court favorably for the Jews. So there we go again and again. And when you actually go through due process and you actually look for evidence, oh, where is the evidence? You see? Just because the baby was thrown in somebody's yard, Where is the evidence? But Zuchowski succeeded, and by the way, he had a position of um, government attorney, something along the lines of a state prosecutor. He had that position as well. Uh, in bringing a new trial with the application of tortures and the whole whole operation of the Inquisition. So in other words, on a regular justice system, it didn't go anywhere. But if you let me do it my way, I can get (laughs) the desired results. He finally reached his goal, the Tribunal of Lublin, which was the Supreme Court, as I said before, sentenced the innocent Jewish elder to death, the king ordered the expulsion of all the Jews from the city and the conversion of the synagogue into a Catholic chapel. And the Catholic church p- placed a revolting picture in the local church representing the scene of the ritual murder. I will show you that. Well, there it is. Okay. <laughs> he, he, he got ahead of me. That's there today. And it's part of 16 paintings that they brought in a, a famous Italian artist, uh, Carol de Pravut, uh, to paint in there. Uh, 16 paintings um what they call the martyrology of the different martyrs. And three or four of these show you in detail how they kill the kid and squeeze this and do this and the other things like that. And I told you before, you know, one, unfortunately, one picture worth a thousand words. And, 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 and sometimes it's worth a thousand words of disproving it. Okay, because there's a little plaque there today that said this was a mistake. But, you know, people say like this, who are you going to believe, your lying eyes, you know, or, or the picture? And, uh, and it's a problem. To justify the miscarriage of justice... Father Zuchowski and his accomplices induced a converted Jew by the name of Serafanovich who poses as a former rabbi, of brisk. Can you imagine that? He comes to the court and he says, I was the brisk of Rove. Right? But it's a Catholic court. The king, you know, they, they, they don't know. They'll accept it. And he testified at the trial against the Jews and he wrote a book called Exposure of Jewish Ceremonies Before God and Before the World in 1716. This book is a mixture of a lunatic's ravings and adventures unrestrained mendacity in other words, he tells them what they want to hear. And it centers around the argument that the Jews use Christian blood in the discharge of a large number of religious and everyday functions. So we're way past matzah time. You know what I'm saying? Because maybe the kid was... Not, well, I guess, the, I guess the kid was found maybe in the winter or something like that. So matzah doesn't work. You get it? In order for that to work, you've got to be found in the springtime. You see? The Jews are alleged to smear. Smith- I mean, just listen to this. But when I say listen to this, Listen to this with the ear that unfortunately you're aware of today. I mentioned already several times uh, in this series and in the past. Most people believe the Jews did 9-11. That's what most people believe. Most people believe Israel you know, is, is, is all at fault and, 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 and murdering Gaza. the Arabs are, are, are blamed. I mean, that's what most people believe. So don't tell me how can people believe you know, When you get it out there, you get your narrative. And so the Jews are supposed to smear the door of a Christian uh, with such blood to predispose the latter in favor of the Jews. Cast a little spell on them. This is obviously a, a mishmash of Yetzirah Mitzrayim when he says, put the blood in the doors. The same blood is put into an egg given to newly married couples during the marriage ceremony. It is mixed with matzah on Pesach. It's also used for soaking an incantation formula written by a rabbi, which is then placed under the threshold of a house to get success in business for the Jew. How does that guy always do well in business? How, how they, you know, can't be He's a better businessman. He, got, he got, got a magic incantation with Christian blood. And Christian blood always reminds of Jesus' blood. You see? In a word, Christian blood is used by the Jews for every possible form of magic and witchcraft. To convict Saranovich of public of lying, the Jews challenged him to attend a disputation in Warsaw in the presence of bishops and Jews. We'll expose you for a phony. The disputation had been arranged to be held in the house of a widow of a high official... And both the Jewish and Christian participants arrived, but the guy failed to appear at the meeting, right? Where his trickery ignorance would have been exposed. And we all know from the late recent Maryland governor election, you can go you can get away very far by refusing to debate. It kind of works. And so the refusal of the informer to attend this position was a test and official record, but it did not prevent an anti Semitic monk from Lemberg named Pilkowski from republishing the book twice. And using it as a tool, conduct a, ho- a whole hideous agitation against the Jews. I'll read you one more case because it goes for pages and pages. But this case is particularly famous and vivid. And, and, and then I'll let it go. And the large Jewish community in it. It's all the way in the west of Poland, right near Germany. The slanderous accusation of the Jews, a reflection of the inveterate hostility of the local Christian population. I told you, out in the estates, it's the landlord that runs the show, the magnate. When it's in town, you have the city council. city council are people competing with the Jews in business. They don't like the houses they're buying and all that sort of thing. Towards the end of the 17th century, the Carmelite Order. That's a bunch of monks. in Pozen contrived a curious lawsuit against the Jews, alleging that following the host desecration in 1399, here it is, 300 years ago, you guys insulted a wafer. The Jews had, by way of penance for their sacrilege, obligated themselves to accompany Christian possessions. And obviously, we want you to march when we have the Easter parade and the Corpus Christi parade and all the others and show respect instead of the Jews saying, It bothers them to march through the city and the Jews pretending like nothing is happening. It's offensive to them. Now, the Jews have to be a little bit smart too and get out of the way, but apparently they weren't. And so the Jews denied the allegation. The case dragged on for years in courts of law that in 1724, the Jews had to pledge themselves to the Carmelites that they would supply two pails of oil every year to supply the lamp burning in front of the three hosts in the church. And by the way, that was considered a very lenient sentence. But the fanaticism on the church was on the lookout for new victims. In 1736, it manifested itself in another murder trial. Everything was prearranged in accordance with the rituals of the Christian fanatics. The dead body of the kid was found in the neighborhood of the city. There was a Polish beggar woman who, under torture, confessed that she sold the, the baby to the elders of the opposing community. Arrests followed. The first victim was the famous Darshan preacher, um, Argyle Kalahora. That's a very Ashkenazi and He's from the Muranos that moved to to uh, Poland after 1492, okay, and several other members of the administration. On the eve of his arrest, which was right around this time of the year, right, right around this time of the year, it was a of Bilem in a bullock. He he gave us his, his drusha was me mono rovizril, sharm. He knew if he's going to be accused, like I told him about Turkey, you know they'll, they'll get killed and then they'll have the trial. And so, like Billam he says, I should die the, the death of the righteous. You see? And in Tisbet, he said, who can, who, who can count the dust and ashes of those who have been burned and quartered for the faith of Israel? Quartering is a pretty. I'm not going to tell you what quartering is, but it's pretty, it's pretty bad. Um, while being led to jail, he addressed the crowds of Jews who, who accompanied him and said, At the hour of my death, I'm not going to have a minion. Therefore, I'm going to say Barclay and everybody should King of you know, You understand? He said, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, uh, I'm not going to survive this. And so since he had ten people there when the police came to arrest them, you know, he did like the cop at a minion after his barclay. At least I got in another barclay. Okay. The forebodings of the preacher were justified. Neither he or the elder survived the fiendish tortures of the cross-examination. While he was tortured, his bones were broken, his body roasted in a fire. He was compelled to hold a lamp to give light to the executioner, covered with wounds and blood, carried to his home where he died in the August, autumn of 1736. Enough. It goes on and on and on. Um, and all the Jews could do is once they could go to the Pope in Jan Poland after 1756 uh, in Volinia, you know, a guy, Eliakim and Getzel, somehow they traveled to Rome and it took them forever to get to this bishop and that bishop and this cardinal and that guy and they, and, and, and they triggered a papal investigation with the whole machinery and they got reports from the bishops in, in, in Poland and in 1757, Cargo Gagnelli, who later was a pope, issued a report which says the Jews are bad, but they don't do this. And whenever it's done, it's a, it, 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 it's a sign of robbery and uh, fiendishness and uh, local, uh, what should I say, corruption. The whole thing was. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a piece of, of, of a recording from, what, what, from the trial what they write over there. Get an idea what a bunch of, of tissue of lies this was. Zuchowski's book, he's the one who writes all this he says as follows. He reported on the testimonies in 1710 blood Bible case in Sondamirs. The Shamus said this blatantly lying, meaning we said you, this blood was from the Christian baby and you use it. He said, no, it's, it's, the Shamus was under torture. It's not true. It's not known to me that we use Christian bl- uh, uh, blood. Avikoman means Pesach, but we don't use blood for him. So in Polish uh, transcript to use some Jewish words, but they don't know what they're reading. He says Komen means Pesach, and this is the Catholic guy writing that uh, this should be noted. He came up with another falsehood because Pesach among the Jews is not the matzah; Pesach is the curls around the ear. <laughs> the payas, you see? Well, you can't fool me. I know what it really says. So, right? I mean, obviously, you know, you understand. Now, wait a minute. He has confusion about payas. He has confusion about Pesach. He has confusion about the meaning of Komen. I'm reading from. Uh, Professor Magda Teter from Wesleyan University, she's Polish, and she knows uh, all the records inside out. She published this very recently. Um, you, you and I know what the Afikoman is. And they wonder, what is the Afikoman? Um, he wasn't the only Catholic uh, uh, guy ignorant of this. Uh, another contemporary writes that Afikoman is a drink used at Passover, this blood which, which this venomous nation uses in their drink during Easter, as well as in other needs, is called Afikoman, that's why, when you say to a Jew, have you drunk Evi coma this Easter? He runs away scared. No, he runs away scared, because he's going to start a blood library, you idiot. Anyway, <laughs> uh, some interpret this word, he says, Evi comen means Evi Pictatum, the, sieve, the, the sin of Eve, Adam and Eve. You see? And the Jews drink this in commemoration of the sin of Eve. Um, it's... it's, it's, it's uh, no, it's not. Not if you're in their hands. And if you're up against this kind of a judge. And I hope you begin to see the horrible tale of telephone in this. You know, I'm talking about the kids by, you, you say to this kids, and by the time it comes, up, he means something different. The Jews do break, what is Afikomen? You take the matzah and you break it. What is the host desecration? You take their wafer and you break it. right? And what do you do with the, with the, with the matzah? You, you eat part of it together with the second cup of red wine. You see the telephone business going on over here? How it gets transmortified by the time but you can't say, oh, that's silly. it's not silly if it results in, in, in what I'm talking about. Um come to the... Uh, in order to prevent, in order to preserve the rape of the truth of history, Tchaikovsky, as I just showed you, has a whole bunch of paintings uh, put up over here, which is still there, not long ago, I saw in the forward an article. No, I, I, I pulled up today because I remembered it. By somebody not religious, Gordon, Gordon Haber, whatever. A personal history of blood libel in Poland. Painting in Sandomir's reveals history of anti-Semitism. never heard of what I just told you before. An American. He talks about he, he he's a Polish major in college. He goes to Poland, and look at the churches. They're very interesting from artistic point of view. One of the places he he somebody says, oh. Uh, you should go to Sandemirs. When I was staying in Lublin, a historian, one of the many Christian poles who've dedicated their careers to preserving Jewish history, tells me, "Oh, you should go see a certain painting in Sandemirs." All I could get at him was, "It was in the cathedral, and I would find it interesting." Okay. Now, really, this guy's not much of a scholar. If you can, you can, you can get all this if you cared to on the internet. But that's not here or there. And he goes and he says, "Oh, it's a very interesting cathedral." High vaulted ceilings, a lovely organ above the archway. The paintings were interesting. Huge 18th century canvases depicting gruesome scenes of Christian martyrdom. But you couldn't call them world class. The artist is Carol de Preveau, wasn't much of a painter. And I checked out the organist, that and the other. And then I saw the painting. And I lost my appetite. The setting is the interior of the synagogue. On the left, a Jew holding a scalpel confers with another Jew over the corpse of a child. The body is ritual cuts on its extremities. In the center, three Jews tip a barrel containing another dead child. A Jew with an oversized nose holds up a bowl to collect the blood. The dismembered bodies of children are scattered about the floor, and a dog has a human foot in its mouth. And on the right, a leering Jew stokes a boy's chin, while another Jew offers a woman a, coil, a, a coin for a child. This is what children are seeing when you go to church in the 1700s. 1800s. You, know, you get what I'm saying? Like? This is not some so I say pornographic kind of thing you know, for, the, the, for, for a few people. If this is a public, if you're a Polish kid living in that area and you grow up from and you go every Sunday to church, what's a Jew? What's a Jew? You see? Today you say, how do you expose children to sort of violence all the, oh, that's an American liberal. <laughs> they don't look at it that way. And so the scene was ludicrous. I, I, I got the gist of the Latin inscription which says, in the year of our Lord, 1698, the infant Margarita, and in 1710, Grzorz Krasnowski had their throats cruelly slipped by the Jews of Sandemirs. See, it was ludicrous. Among other things, what's a dog doing in a synagogue? But I was stunned. I was recording the inscription in my notebook. See, he's an American guy. I don't know, it's a student or something like that, a journalist. And you know, he said, oh, this is interesting. He's recording the inscription in a notebook, and someone tapped me on the shoulder. A plump woman in an apron. In Polish, she said, I'm not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to record it. The inscription. Can't do what? That. She said, pointing my notebook. I snorted and turned back to the painting. The woman chugged away and came with a 60-year-old guy who was stooped like a shepherd's crook, although he's more genial. His pose is incomprehensible, but he said three times, the mayor of the city says, one cannot write here. The Jewish guy said, I'm a writer, don't worry about it. No, I'm sorry, the mayor says, I'm almost finished, and so on and so forth. Uh, This is going on today. The story I read you was written a month or two months ago at the most. Not even. And he concludes, like I was saying before, about the grandparents whose memory is being <laughs> sponsored here tonight. He said, Next morning on the bus to Krakow, I was mulling over a story my grandmother used to tell me. He said, She had an uncle who was a house painter in Poland in Sandomierz Back in 1915, he heard that a Christian kid disappeared. He left town, never came back, went to America. And she said, You know, the story always struck me as exaggerated an overreaction of shtetl Jews. <laughs> But now I understood the fear. Yeah, you know, the guy was simply smart. That's all. When I actually managed to read the article, I learned I've been lucky, as it were, to have seen the painting. It was removed in two thousand six. Wait a minute. But then after some back and forth, representatives of the Jewish community and the Catholic Church said it's better to display it. In January this year it was rehung, but there's a little piece underneath which says the event is not historically accurate. The Jews could not. It did not perpetuate ritual murder. I'll be honest with you. it's better take that away. <laughs> you understand? Because most people don't read the fine print. And if they do, they said, some rich American gave money to put a plaque up there. You know, I mean, I just read you a story one after the other. The Catholic Church, the Pope in Rome himself, and the Cardinals repeatedly say the story is not true. It's true to them. It's true to them. And so here we're dealing with something that goes around, uh, you know, down to, to, to modern times. So, I conclude by saying the good old kingdom of Poland, which the Jews once upon a time called Polin, here we rest, uh, marred its declining years with these travesties. Overall, it was good for the Jews economically, but the increasing tempo of an orgy of blood, community by community, marred everything. All this comes to an end with the crack up of a Poland. When Catherine the Great, Fred the Great, and Maria Theresa chop up Poland and remove it off the map, so now there's, the Poles don't have their own power. They're under Austria, they're under Prussia, and under Russia. At least at this stage, that meant that they're under more normal types of regimes and uh, you can't do these blood libel things anymore. So as long as Poland was Poland, you could get away with it. And, it, and, and, and even in the last years when things are supposed to be more modern, that's when they had all these outbreaks. Okay. So really, to, uh, to judge this properly, Poland was very dissatisfied with its own situation and they had reason to be. But instead of saying, there's something wrong with us, they took it out on, on, on the Jews. I mean, that, that's what it is. You understand? The, what's wrong in Poland is because the Jews are are, are, are murdering babies. Um, and as we've seen, it never really left the Polish bloodstream. Uh, and that's why you guys are <laughs> lucky. That, that's why people uh, 100 years ago started moving from Eastern Europe uh, to places like America and England uh, to get take out of there, you know, you, you can move to the south you can move to the north you can move to the west Coast the East Coast thank God in North America you didn't have any anything along these lines um, the people in this country and their kids could not imagine what, what I'm telling you because it just it's so bizarre thank God to the American experience I hope it it continues to be this way and uh, for the rest it will be continued good night